Good morning, everybody. It's, it's great to be back here worshiping with you again. We're going to be looking at Scripture to help us answer the question, what is the mission of the church? What is the mission of the church? The word mission uh, within the church has been handled with somewhat of a uh, confusion, um, broadly speaking, between two camps. On the one hand, you have what can be called the social action gospel. That, can be encom- that encompasses such things as mercy ministries dedicated to the relief of physical suffering, uh, medical missionaries, and missionary endeavors. That we'll call one camp the social action gospel. The other camp is, uh, we, we will call gospel proclamation ministries. These include preaching the word, uh, teaching the Bible, evangelism, and training, theological training. So today we're going to mine our text, Acts 13, 1 to 3, to look at what Scripture has to say on this topic. Before we do that, there is some evidence within um, the, the church today that the social action gospel may be winning. For example, a survey done on the country of Malawi um, in Africa found that of all missionaries in the country of Malawi, 62%, almost two-thirds, were involved in social action ministries or uh, support staff. That leaves the, the remaining 38% of missionaries were involved in gospel proclamation. In fact, in Malawi, there are as many Western school teacher missionaries as there are evangelists and church planters, theological instructors combined. This has led one pastor to uh, lead the current confusion around missions, uh, led him to say that missions has become going somewhere else and doing something for Jesus. Going somewhere else and doing something for Jesus. So it seems that the, the, the social action gospel may be winning here. Now between these two camps, I want to... Um, there is agreement on something. Both camps agree that missions presupposes, and this follows your outline in your, in your bulletin, it presupposes four things. A sender, a person or person sent by the sender, those to whom one is sent, and an assignment. So a sender, whoever, who is sent, a person or person sent, those to whom one is sent, and an assignment. And today we're going to answer those four questions. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 13, verses 1 to 3. Acts chapter 13, 1 to 3. We're going to go through this text and look at answering those questions uh, this morning. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manion, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So to begin, we're going to look at that question, who is the sender? And I've got five main points, five main sub-points under that first question. So the first, first point, um, well, let's look at the church in, in Antioch. What can we establish about the church, um, the sender here? Well, before we do that, let's look at Antioch in scriptures. This was one of the places uh, mentioned in Acts eleven nineteen as places that Christians had fled following the persecution of Stephen. So how did the church in Antioch start? We're told in Acts eleven nineteen, which says, So then, those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. So the church started because of the persecution and the stoning of Stephen. Um, we, we know from God's word, Genesis fifty twenty that what people intend for evil, God uses for good. And here's an example of that. Persecution of the church took place. And of course, what happened? The gospel was spread to these places here, one of them being Antioch. So that's how the church started. 
The next thing we know about the church in Antioch, as we mine scripture to find out what, what are, who, things about this particular sender of the first mission, it was a teaching church. It was a teaching church. Acts 11.26 says, And for an entire year they met with the church and taught considerable numbers, and the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. So the they there is Paul and Barnabas, and they spend a whole year teaching the church. Um, and so that you clearly see there uh, from the list here of the prophets and teachers that they were a, a teaching church. Next point about the background of the church in Antioch. It was the earliest church um, example given in, in Scripture of a church that saw a great number of Gentiles who believed and turned to the Lord, 1121. They had many Gentiles coming into the church for the first time. Prior to that, the church had largely been a, a Jewish, had, had a Jewish identity. But, um, and, th- and that was actually why Barnabas was sent up to the church in Antioch to go and investigate what's going on up there because they're bringing Gentiles into the church. So it was the first church is that, that had that mixed congregation. And it was also the first place where Christians were called Christians. And I think that's interesting because what that says is these people were so closely identified with the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that they almost became synonymous. They were called Christians. And I think it's a good call for us today that that is our that is how we want the world to, to see us, as so closely identified with Christ, our Lord and Savior. And they there were called Christians for the first time. So you see the identity of the church starting to take on a different identity to that of simply a Jewish one. So the first thing then that we find out about the center here, sender here is it is a uh, strong, mature, teaching church. The church was around, uh, the, the persecution in, uh, that uh, took place with Stephen was around 35 AD. This text here is about 48 AD. So it's about 13 years old, but they'd had a lot of, uh, they, they'd had some considerable growth there and uh, they were teaching the scriptures. So that's number one that we find out about the sender here, that they were a strong, mature teaching church. Next in the text, we come across the statement, prophets and teachers. There's a word in the Greek, uh, tis, which is translated certain. So it's certain prophets and teachers, which suggests that this isn't the entirety of the prophets and teachers that were at the church there. But he's picked out this, uh, Luke has picked out this selection for us. Um, Before I go into prophets and teachers, let me just say, in that group that we mentioned there, we have uh, Barnabas and Saul listed. Barnabas and Saul were apostles, remember, Barnabas in a secondary sense of the term, Paul in the, the, the sense of sent by Christ, fulfilling the office of apostle. And, and apostles, um, apostles encompass all of those offices. So you see, they, they are, apostles are preachers, teachers, prophets, evangelists, and uh, they, they have a broad remit. Um, so here, it, when it mentions prophets and teachers, it's really, I think, referring to those three other people mentioned in the text um, that I'll come to shortly. So but Paul and Barnabas, apostles. But then it asks, I'm sure the question's raised, well, what then is a prophet? What then is a New Testament prophet? Well, to summarize, one commentator has said, a New Testament prophets were to teach, preach, and instruct the Christian people before the New Testament canon came into being. Teach, preach, and instruct the Christian people before the New Testament canon came into being. Five points on, on uh, these New Testament prophets. First of all, they play a very important role in the early church because they gave new revelation. They gave new revelation before the canon came to, into completion. By the way, canon, kids, is the, is the, I'm talking about the Bible here. Before the Bible came in, they didn't have this to refer to. So you had apostles and prophets ref, uh, giving out new revelation from the Lord. How do I know that? Well, Ephesians 3, 4 says, By referring to this mystery revealed to him, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men. And then Ephesians 3, 4 says this, As it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. Apostles and prophets listed there. And then Ephesians 2.20, 
I'm sure familiar to many of us, having been, filt- uh, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So here you have a group of people in the New Testament being given new revelation along with the apostles. However, this new revelation still needed to be tested. And in that sense, it was different to the apostles with the large A um, who were sent by Christ. Um, So they still needed to be tested. It wasn't wasn't perfect. Um, 1 Corinthians 14, 29, let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment. So you you see there's a weighing of this revelation going on here. You, You certainly don't... Uh, there was no weighing in on what Paul was saying as, as an, an apostle. So I'll come to, they were, they were secondary in nature here. First Thessalonians 5.20, do not despise prophetic utterance, um, but examine them carefully. So you can see that their, their, um, their new revelation had to be tested, unlike the prophets, uh, unlike the apostles who were sent by Christ. Point number two. Point number three, this group of prophets appears to be secondary to the apostles. They were always named secondary to the apostles. Um, he gave Ephesians 4.11. He gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. So you see there, apostles first, then the prophets. And s- same thing is said in 1 Corinthians, apostles, prophets. Um, they were able to predict the future in some instances. Uh, there's a foretelling Agabus, the prophet named in Acts, predicted the famine that was to come on Jerusalem and also um, Paul's imprisonment. Uh, point number five, there, is a, there seems to be from the scriptures a more of a practical nature to these New Testament prophets than, um, than doctrinal. Um, Acts 15.32 says, Judas and Silas, also being prophets themselves, encouraged and strengthened the brethren with a lengthy message. So you can see this, this encouraging, strengthening. It's very similar from looking at scriptures to the role of the preacher today. Um, think of the language, 2 Timothy 3.16, of, of teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training. So you see this um, New Testament prophets as uh, somewhat similar to preachers today. So the question then is, do these people exist today, as some people contend they do? Well, let's not forget that in AD 48, they didn't have the Bible. The Bible hadn't been written then. So there was a need for the mind of the Holy Spirit to be revealed to the new church and um, to to men. And he used the apostles and the prophets to do that. We don't need that. We have the mind of the Holy Spirit revealed to us in Scripture we don't need 2 Peter 1.3, everything we need for life and, and godliness. And of course, you've got Revelation 22.19. And if anyone takes away the words of the book of this prophecy, the book, the Bible, of this, which the prophecy is contained within, um, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city, which are written in this book. You have the inscriptural curse there of anyone who's going to add to the words of the Bible. The Holy people throughout history have always tried to divide and separate the Holy Spirit. Um, false teachers, I should say, throughout history have tried to divide the, God's Word and, and the Holy Spirit, and they cannot be divided. The Holy Spirit guides us into this truth, and He's revealed His mind, everything we need in the Bible. So, the particular office of the apostles and the prophets was given for the revealing of the mind of Christ until the apostles passed away, John being the last one who wrote Revelation, and we now have God's inherent word. Second point on do these, does this office exist today? Well, a foundation is complete. You can't add to a foundation, and it was built here by the prophets and the apostles. And the last thing I'll say is, just on new Revelation, that there's really has got a pretty poor track record in the church of people saying that I have new revelation from the Lord. And I think it's a very naive position that people take, that, that we forget what Scripture says about our hearts, about our bodies, even after salvation. We still have what uh, Dr. George Zemeck calls a sin hangover. We still have the hangover of sin, even after uh, we have. Um, that's why God has given us his perfect word to test everything by so we have a sin hangover. Also, where is the authority on these people who say, I've had this word from the Lord? Their authority ultimately 
goes down to themselves. It's their word. What sort of authority is that? We look to the God's perfect inherent word preserved for us through the centuries to test what we have. And the last thing I'll say is a comment made by uh, Jonathan Edwards in his book on religious affections. Um, Jonathan Edwards, as uh, uh, possibly America's greatest theologian, saw in the time of the Great Awakening um, in, in Northampton great outpouring of the Holy Spirit, a true revival, which is many people come into Christ um, at one time. Just like one, tra- one conversion is a miracle, God in times of history has poured his spirit on certain places at certain times so that many people are brought into the church with true work of the Holy Spirit for his glory. Edward saw this in his time as pastor in Northampton. And he also saw many counterfeits of what that true work of the Holy Spirit was that that the history of the church has seen. Everything the Holy Spirit will do, the devil will try and counterfeit and fake. And Jonathan Edwards saw that. He saw so much of it, he wrote the book Religious Affections. And in it, there's something which has been very helpful to me um, in, in adding a real strength and credence to the case about there being no new revelation today. He says this, Again, there is not only uh, nothing in the nature of these imaginations of outward appearances from whence we can infer that they are above the divine, above the power of the devil, the outward experiences being these visions and uh, experiences. But it is certain also that the devil can excite and often hath excited such ideas. They were external ideas which he excited in the dreams and visions of the false prophets of old who were under the influence of lying spirits. And they were external ideas that he often excited in the minds of the heathen priests, magicians, and sorcerers in their visions and ecstasies. And they were external ideas that he excited in the mind of the man, Jesus, Christ Jesus, when he showed him all the kingdoms of the world with the glory of them, that when, when those kingdoms were not really in sight. I always find that very helpful. So what, what Jonathan Edwards is saying is, listen, the devil was able to create within the mind of the man Christ these um, images of all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, Matthew 4, 8, when he tempted him in the devil. How naive I then am le- led to think that people can stand up and say that they, um, that they have these experiences without taking into account it's, that these can be produced and are produced by our enemy for his glory. What is he trying to do? The same thing he's been trying to do from the beginning. Did God really say? Did God really say? Cast doubt on God's word. So, I think then, just to conclude that, the prophets, I hope I've been clear, new revelation before the canon was complete and that office no longer exists today. Teachers, what's meant then by teachers? What's the difference between a prophet and a teacher? Well, that office does exist today and takes place across all levels of the church. Think of preaching from uh, a public proclamation from the pulpit, but teaching takes place at all different levels of the church and exists today. However, it's not new revelation. It's not new revelation. It's teaching revealed truth. So the revealed truth given by the apostles and the prophets to the early church would have been taught by these people who were given the, the spiritual gift of teaching. Like I said, this office is still operating. So then, under, this, um, under the question of who is the sender, we've, we've got so far the strong uh, teaching church in Antioch. We also know from looking at these prophets and teachers that they were a gifted church. You know, bad doctrine at home leads to bad doctrine abroad. And here we have a strong uh, teaching church teaching the truths of, uh, of the apostles and the prophets. Okay, number three then, of under this uh, f- third sub-point under this uh, first question of who is the, the sender. They had a strong bench. They had a strong bench. Uh, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, moving along in our text, everybody. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Mannion, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. A few comments quickly on, on who these people are. Barnabas was a, a Levite from Cyprus, a prominent man in the early church. Um, his name means son of encouragement. It seems that Barnabas had the gift of discernment. Barnabas had the gift of discernment. I say that for two reasons. One is he defended Paul 
in front of the apostles in Acts 9. Paul had come there and they were all scared of him. Remember, imagine this guy who went out breathing threatenings and slaughter. He comes back to the church three years after being converted and they were all a bit afraid of him, understandably so. Barnabas steps up and told the apostles, in other words, that he's the real deal, don't be afraid of him. The other example is uh, the apostles sent Barnabas up to Antioch from Jerusalem, which is what brought him to this text today. He saw that the work of the Holy Spirit going on with the Gentiles there was a work of the Holy Spirit, and he went and got Paul and stayed there for a year. So it seems like if they needed to sniff something out, Barnabas was a loyal servant, and he went uh, to do that. Um, Last point on Barnabas. It seems as if Barnabas may have been the senior of the two at this stage. Four times, the the phrase uh, Barnabas and Saul, or those two together, is mentioned five times in Scripture. Four times is mentioned Barnabas first, then Saul. Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul. Then uh, after Paul takes the lead on the secondary missionary journey, it becomes Saul and Barnabas. So there's even a a suggestion that Barnabas may have been the senior of the two at, at this stage. Next, we come to uh, three people who there's not a huge amount of information about to, um, at the church in Antioch. Simeon, who was called Niger. Niger means black. Lucius of Cyrene. Uh, Cyrene is in modern-day Libya in North Africa. Uh, Manion, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. Um, Herod the Great had 10 children. So throughout Scripture, you see little Herods popping up everywhere. And here's another one. Uh, so you can see from, from this, uh, Mannion would have been brought up as a foster brother of Herod the Tetrarch, brought up in his court. So I think the picture we're given here, before I come to Saul, is one of great diversity and people from all over. You, and, and also you've got um, people from different parts of the world. You've got um, uh, people from the Jewish church. And you also have people from high society there as well. And the gospel here. Is, is uniting the elders or the leadership of this church. And there is, it seems there's no, uh, there's, uh, it's just a beautiful picture of the unity that we have in Christ where the Spirit um, brings all together in union with Christ and in unity in the church. And then the last person mentioned needs no introduction really, um, the Apostle Paul or Saul named here. A couple of things I want to say about Saul, just to let us know where we're at in Scripture, in his life. Paul was converted around 34 AD. He then spent uh, three years in Arabia. If you remember, Paul didn't receive his, um, his, the gospel from men. Paul received the gospel from Christ. Uh, hence, he was able to be called an apostle and fulfill the office of the apostle. He wasn't sent Unlike Barnabas, who was sent by a church, sent by the Jerusalem church, therefore a secondary apostle, Paul was sent by Christ, so he fulfills the office of the apostle, which was unique. So he was converted in 34 AD. He then went up to Arabia for three years, where he was given the gospel by Christ. That's where he had his period of special revelation, where he was taken up to the third heaven. So he was taught the gospel by Christ for three years in Arabia. Then he goes back down to Jerusalem Um, After three years, which brings us to 37 AD, meets with the church there. They try to kill him. The theme in Paul's life, everyone seems everywhere was always trying to to kill him. Then he flees back up to Tarsus, and he teaches there for 10 years. So that brings us up to where we are today. Converted in 34, three years in Arabia, 37. uh, 10 years in Antioch, that brings us up to 47, 48, which brings us down to the passage where he is today, where Barnabas came to get him. A couple of observations about that. Isn't it amazing? Paul had received the gospel from Christ, um, taken up to the third heaven, had these amazing experiences, um, yet he ministered quietly for a decade in Tarsus. You'd think that he was ready to go after that, but he ministered quietly uh, in Tarsus, and he was always, as we should be, dependent on the Holy Spirit for ministry activities. Um, I'm reminded of Moses. Moses spent 40 years in the wilderness uh, before he uh, started his ministry at the age of 80, by the way. Jesus was 30 years before beginning his ministry. But these, these are, they're waiting on the, the Holy Spirit for the timing of ministry endeavors. You see, Paul knew that the power behind his ministry was not his. In 1 Thessalonians 1.5, he says, 
Our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. Paul knew that it, was, it wasn't him. It was the Holy Spirit driving his ministry. So much so that he, he says back to the Thessalonians, you know that wasn't me. To which the answer goes, yeah, you're right. It couldn't be you. We, we knew you. This was the power of the Holy Spirit driving ministry. And hence you see the results of it as we go through the pages of Scripture. So as we look at the sender here, I'm spending a bit more time on the, the first point there, the sender. We've got a strong teaching church, gifted leadership, and they also had a strong bench. That's the third point. The next thing um, that I want to look at is as we move through Scripture together. It says, verse 2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. Here was a church that was faithful in their worship and behavior. They were praying and fasting. What is fasting? Well, it is giving up one of the gifts of God for a period of time to seek the will of God, often associated with eating or drinking. A couple of comments uh, uh, on, three comments on, on fasting. Um, fasting, is it commanded for us today? Well, the answer to that is no, it is not. It was commanded in the Old Testament for the Day of Atonement. Um, however, we don't no longer, we have had the sacrifice once and for all. We don't need or to observe that, um, so we don't uh, fast today. We, we're not commanded in Scripture to fast today. When Jesus says, um, when you fast, however, there is an expectation there that, that we will. Um, that was at the Sermon on the Mount he said that, and there were still days of atonement to come. So he may have had those in mind, uh, but he may have had also in mind uh, the, the present-day church, as evidenced by these people after Christ fasting. Point number two, it's always associated with prayer, particularly prayers of entreaty, where you're pleading with God over a particular situation. So you can pray without fasting, but you can't fast without prayer. So why do it there? Well, what do we observe in our text? Why were they doing it? They were seeking the Lord's will over important decisions. You also see the church in Antioch, uh, sorry, the, the Paul and Barnabas uh, fasting when they went back around to appoint elders in the new churches that were established. They, um, it says there, when they appointed for them elders in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord. You see there that they weren't able to spend time at these churches uh, to uh, follow and, and to, uh, you know, evaluate and appoint this leadership. They prayed for the Lord's will and they had to quickly appoint elders. So you see it done for important decisions where we are seeking the God's will. Um, and a good example from the Old Testament is David, when he was told after his adultery with Bathsheba that his child would die, David fasted and prayed uh, uh, that prayer of entreaty, pleading with God not to make, not not to allow that to come to pass, and that's an example of a decision and that that pleading with um, with God. Uh, last point is this is certainly not a work and not a merit. There's you'll find some of the charismatics will say that they get some special experience from it. There, there's none of that. Um, you can expect, and you see it actually in, in other works-based religions. In uh, Roman Catholicism, it takes on a kind of sacramental sense. Um, in Islam, it's one of the five pillars of, of Islam, uh, but there is no, it's not a work. There is no merit from it. It should be done. Jesus tells us how to do it, not to walk around uh, looking grumpy or tired so that people will see it. But Jesus tells us um, to do it quietly as we seek uh, and, and uh, the Lord's will. So we have a strong, gifted, uh, a strong teaching church, a gifted church, we have a strong bench, and we also have a worshiping uh, church here evidenced in point number two. Before we move on uh, through the text, just a couple of uh, side points that I wanted to make on activism. We hear a lot about activism today, of uh, taking action, and the two points that I want to make is, is this. Notice in this text, there's no program or plan of action done by the church. What are they doing? They are seeking the Holy Spirit's will to determine their actions. They're not right in the script. There's no plan or program evidenced. They don't want, it's almost like they don't want to do anything of their own power, of their own will. Instead, they're directing their thoughts to God. So as a church, here we have 
a wonderful picture of how to seek the Lord's will as it comes to that activism. This is, by the way, very similar to great revivals of religion that I mentioned earlier. And what you'll notice by reading the accounts of people like Jonathan Edwards who've gone through this is what they say is they were there teaching, preaching, equipping the saints for the work of ministry, which is the job of the church, and then all of a sudden something happened. And you, you read in their accounts, they didn't change anything. They went through the activities that a church should be doing, being faithful to the word, preaching, teaching, and then the Holy Spirit came upon them and many people came to Christ. And it's not of their doing. It's like an alien force invading. And they, what the preacher and the, the, the church is left to do is not think, oh yeah, that was because of that, 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 that. Not at all. This is them thinking, I don't know what's going on. We are just preaching the word and letting the word do its work. So this um, is a picture of how the revivals of religion that we've seen in this land and other lands, including my own, where I'm from, uh, taking place is that regular activity of the work. So, so that's the, just the one comment I wanted to make on activism to you this morning. The sec uh, regarding the church, activism as the church. However, I think this also has lessons for us when it comes to activism, doing things uh, for us individually. Something I found very helpful um, in evaluating uh, my own uh, call to, to ministry and as I evaluate, uh, evaluate activism was words I, I read in the biography of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones by Ian Murray. And I hope you too will find this, this helpful. In this excerpt that I'm going to read you, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was... Uh, writing a letter to his own daughter. His own daughter was evaluating a call to work for one of the missionary societies back in, in what would have been the, uh, you know, in the 1950s or so in, in the UK. And what he re read was, was very helpful to his own uh, daughter. He says this, All you have to do is tell God that you are content to do his will, whatever it may be, and more, that you will rejoice to do his will. Also remember, and especially in an atmosphere like OICCU and IVF, they were Christian student organizations, which tends to be activist and to place such an emphasis on works that to be comes before to do. That is where we all fail. Our business is to make ourselves such instruments as shall be fit for the master's use. He always tells such people how and where and when he wants to use them. You prepare yourself and he will then show you what he wants you to do. I urge you not for, the only, own, for your own sake, but even for the work's sake to implement these principles. To be comes before to do. And we are called to be faithful to scripture and not write the own, our own script when it comes to action, activism and ministry. But we are called to pray and fast and seek the Lord's will for our church and for our lives. Next in verse two, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. The Acts of the Apostles has often been called the Acts of the Holy Spirit. You see the Holy Spirit driving the missionary activity of the church here. Um, you read it in Acts 11, 12. The Spirit told me to go to them without misgivings. And Acts 16, they passed through Phrygian and Gal the Phrygian and Gal Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. So you see all the way through Acts, Holy Spirit says, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this. So you see that it is the Holy Spirit driving this. And that leads me to the fifth and final point on who is the sender. This is a Holy Spirit-filled church. A Holy Spirit-filled church. So to recap, strong and teaching, uh, gifted a talented church with a strong bench that was worshiping and was Holy Spirit filled. So I hope we've answered the question in this first missionary journey that we come across in scripture, some information to help us form who were the sender here in the mission of the church. And it's, it's, it's that type of church. Very briefly before I move on, how does the Holy Spirit lead us today? How does the Holy Spirit lead us today? Well, here you see a, a, a church that is being led by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit leads us today. He always leads us into his truth. He leads us into his truth. And he does so in a way that persuades us and changes the desires of our minds and hearts so that we desire to follow him. I don't have time to stay with that point. Um, 
However, I, do, I, I don't want to pass it by to know that the Holy Spirit leads us by persuasion through his word. And indeed, that's how we are converted in the first place. If you had someone say, whoever is converted against their will remains of the same opinion still. That's how the Lord works in our own lives. So as we reflect on how does the Holy Spirit lead us today, how did he lead us to Christ in the first place? Well, he doesn't drive us there. He's not a taskmaster like the devil was. We used to be forced to do the devil's will. It didn't seem like it sometimes because our will and his will was so similar that it didn't seem like we were being forced, but we were. We were slaves to sin. Yet the Holy Spirit leads us um, and persuades us and changes the desires of our minds and our hearts so that his offer of grace to us is so irresistible that it cannot be refused. And that's how we are led to that saving knowledge is that, is that we are given a picture of our own depravity, a picture of the glory of God. That is a work of the Holy Spirit within the heart of the believer. And then we are led to cry out and grasp to that offer of grace that is given to us so freely out of nothing we've done. So the Holy Spirit leads us through persuasion and he led them through that persuading and not like the, 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 our old master, the devil used to do by forcing us as a taskmaster. Next then, next point, we've established some information about the sender. Who is the sent? Who is the sent? Then uh, the scripture says this in verse 3. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off, the them being Saul and Barnabas. Well, there's more, a couple of observations. There's more praying and fasting going on. And uh, they laid their hands on them. That's not to be thought of as a ordination laying of hands on. These guys are already in full-time ministry. This is the laying on hands on them to fulfill this particular work of the Holy Spirit as they go out to do their work. Um, I find it greatly ironic that the one thing that Paul set out to stop when he was in Jerusalem was the spreading of the church. And he asked for the letters so that he could go about his business. And what's the one thing that we see him here beginning? The spreading of the church. How wonderful. So, they sent out their best and their brightest. Who is the sent? They sent out these qualified uh, leaders who were the best and the brightest in their church. It's fair to say they lost their best pastors here at this church in Antioch. I'm surprised it didn't say that Paul and Barnabas left with a cohort of believers who couldn't bear to see them leave, who'd sat under their teaching for a year. It doesn't. Maybe people from their small group. But, you know, they, they sent them off. So they were obedient. They were, they were faithful and the church sent them off, um, knowing that it was the will of the Holy Spirit. They sent off Paul and Barnabas for this particular work. But also, they had a plurality of elders there, didn't they? Remember, they've got, they've got a, a group of leaders here who, no doubt, would step up. And let's not forget that it's never whoever stands behind here or whoever's doing the teaching within the church. It is the Holy Spirit that the church needs to be. It is God's word that, that, that was, should be always the appeal of a healthy church. Never the spokesperson who's just a conduit, but it's, they had other people who were gifted as prophets and teachers to teach them the word at Antioch. So, so who is sent? We found their, their best and brightest. Now, that brings us to, we've answered the, the, the questions of the first missionary journey about who is the sender and who did they send. We need to look elsewhere in the book of Acts to answer the remaining two questions, namely, who did they go to and what did they do? So let's look at those um, briefly now, um, those to whom they were sent. Where did they go? Well, you've got to follow that first missionary journey in Acts uh, through chapters uh, 13 through the end of 14 to find out where they went and what they did. First of all, they set out to Cyprus, Barnabas's hometown. Then they went into the regions of Galatia and they planted churches in Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. So I think I can answer that fairly quickly. Um, to whom were they sent? They went to places where there was no established church. They went to places that, where there was no established church and they went to, therefore, the places where there were lots of lost people who hadn't heard the gospel. That was their target. That was a specific target of Paul 
and his missionary journey. Just out of interest, elsewhere you do see Paul sending pastors to strengthen existing churches. He sent Timothy to Ephesus, and he sent Titus to Crete to, as, uh, we, as he says right at the beginning of his book uh, to Titus, go and set the, um, set the, uh, put, put in order what remained uh, and appoint elders in every town as I directed you, as he said. So, but here in Paul's particular journey, you see the primary focus is on places where there isn't an established church, but also there is room in scripture where you see him strengthen an existing churches. So that's the places where he went. That's point number three. The lost in places with no uh, established church. Now we come to the fourth point in the outline, which is what is the assignment? What is the um, assignment? Well, this is this is very interesting if you look at, um, just to further what I've already said, when you look at the map of where Paul went here, first of all, and, and what happened? He went to Antioch, first of all, um, in Galatia, and was, quote-unquote, driven out, Acts 13.50. In Iconium, they attempted to mistreat and stone them. In Lystra, he was stoned and left for dead. And then he got to Derby. Now, if you look at where Derby is in a, in, a, in a map of that area, Paul has actually gone from... Uh, let me give you a Florida example. Uh, let me give you a Gainesville example of just where he was when he came to Derby. He went from Gainesville to... Tampa, then he went from Tampa up to Tallahassee, then he went from Tallahassee to Jacksonville, and you think, what's the quickest way to get back to his sending church, is to come and do the journey that I did from Jacksonville down to Gainesville, but it doesn't say that, he didn't do that journey, in fact, Paul, even though he was driven out, even though he was stoned and attempted to be stoned in all of these places, scripture says, And when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, this is Derby, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and to Antioch. So you're left asking the question, he didn't go home, why not? By the way, he'd have gone pretty close to his hometown as well on the way back from Derby to uh, Antioch. Great chance to go home as well, but he didn't do that. There was something very important that Paul wanted to do to take him back, all the way back around in that first missionary journey. Well, what was it? Well, the Acts 14, 22 and 23 tells us. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And then 14.23, when they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So Paul went all the way back around. Believers were generated by the preaching of the gospel and he wanted to make sure that they went back and they had the established order within the church of elders. And he also wanted to go back to encourage them. Paul loved his churches. He had a pastor's heart, and he says he's often in childbirth for his churches. Um, Such anguish they caused him. But the point is this. Paul went back to establish and set in order the churches. And that leaves us with the the question then. So so, So the assignment was to set up the church there in these cities. Why is that? Why is that? so that they could continue the mission that he had started. Paul says something very interesting in Romans 15, 23. He was talking to the Romans about wanting to go and visit them there. And Paul says this, there is no further place for me in these regions. In these regions, by the way, extended from Jerusalem to Illyricum, 2,000 miles. And he's looking back at this region as he's describing to the Romans. And he's saying, there's no further place for me in these regions. What does he mean by that? Does he mean that he's preached the gospel to every single person there? No, of course not. Does, he, does Paul mean that he's established churches in every single town? I don't think he means that either. There's so many people in that landmass all the way across. What I think it means is that Paul had established churches that would then go out and establish other churches. They would see it as part of their mission to continue that and thereby reach. Paul, looking back on his mission, could say, there's no further place for me here. I've got my churches there and they will spread the word. Look at the example of the church in Revelation, the churches in Revelation. You have the Ephesian church as the beachhead. But from the Ephesian church, it's likely that those other churches 
all came from that church. And um, so there you see an example of healthy churches teaching, preaching, waiting for the movement of the Holy Spirit, then planting more churches, the order of church planting in the gospel, in, in, uh, in the scriptures. So then... All, the assignment was all places the gospel hadn't been preached with no established churches. A couple of points on this unreached word that we use. There are still many unreached places today. Um, it's what's called the 1040 window. You go 10 degrees north of the equator to 40 degrees north of the, of the equator, and you look at that band across there. And that's uh, within that group, there are apparently one organization that said 5,921 unreached people groups within that 1040 window. Uh, there are also 5 billion people, 5 billion people, largely because you see India and China, the two largest populaces on earth, included within that 1040 window. So my point to you is this, there are still many unreached places today. However, there are unreached, reached places too. Um, I often think going through cities or places in America that the Apostles Paul's reaction to walking around some of the cities in America today would be somewhat similar to his reaction when he was walking around Athens, seeing all of these different gods and statues and saying, men of Athens, I see in many ways you are very religious. And here you have different churches. I passed some on the journey here today. Churches preaching false gospels. Just because there's a church, if they're not a teaching church, teaching sound doctrine, and following the, the, the example of the New Testament church, they're not churches. But there's a tendency we may think places are reached when they are not. So then, um, the mission of the first uh, missionary trip, as I hope to have established with you today, was commissioned by spirit-led, strong teaching churches, accomplished by qualified, established leaders, sent to places with no established church, and therefore lost people, and set up to establish more churches just like themselves, and to do uh, exactly what uh, they had done and spread the gospel that way. A couple of objections um, here. The one objection is, well, can't you do both as we look? So, so to conclusively say, the mission of that, that this mission was gospel proclamation and to set up churches for the purposes of gospel proc- proclamation. The question is, can't you do both? Can't you have some social action as well as gospel proclamation? Well, Joel James and Brian Biederbach comment in an um, article on this, and they say that when the church puts the gospel second, the gospel has a way of staying second. You see, there are many organizations in the world that, can, that aim to alleviate poverty, um, including government, which, which God does ordain. Let me make one more point before I uh, back that up. This is not talking about our roles as individual Christians and meeting the needs of our neighbors as we come across them. Uh, Christ identifies your neighbor as anyone who comes across your path in his story of the Good Samaritan. This is the mission of the church. So we are called to care for the world around us, and this doesn't preclude that. We're absolutely called to preach the gospel to them for the same reason the church is. But I don't want anyone to think, think that. We are called to have that heart of compassion on the world, which does include, as individual Christians, sometimes includes that uh, physical um, care for people. As the Holy Spirit works on uh, through us, um, however, the church is the only organization in the world that can alleviate eternal suffering. The church is the only organization in the world that can alleviate eternal suffering. That, my friends, is the why. John Piper says this, Christians care about all suffering. Hence my point earlier. Christians care about all suffering, especially eternal suffering, else they have a defective heart or a flameless hell. So we, uh, the church is to care about, is the one organization that can alleviate eternal suffering. And I made the point about Jesus' ministry involved care for the poor, and his did, and ours can as, as, as Christians in this fallen world. So then, to, um, to wrap this up, there's a, there's a story I'd like to, to share with you. When Oscar Wilde was studying, Oscar Wilde, the Irish poet, when he was studying the classics at Oxford, he had to take an oral exam to test his knowledge of Greek. The examiners looked at him, sensed that he was a difficult young man, 
and assigned him the most difficult text to translate in the Greek New Testament, the account of Paul's shipwreck in Acts 27 with its extensive use of nautical language. That will be all, Mr. Wilde, the examiner said when Oscar, a brilliant Greek student, provided an effortless translation. Oh, please, exclaimed Wilde, do let me go on. I'm longing to know how the story finishes. Well, the great thing is that this story that was started here in Acts 13 continues today. In Matthew 28, we have the Great Commission. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you until the end of the age. You have that start of the picture there. Eleven people. Eleven apostles. Then we're given this picture, which I notice is in uh, the front page of the bulletin this morning. It was also mentioned in, uh, by Pastor Brandon in myriads and myriads. Revelation 7, 9. And after these things, I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. So you see the start of the journey, and we see the end of the journey in Revelation. And here we are, the church, and... Uh, as this story unfolds. And I hope today, as we've looked at the actions and behavior of that early church in Antioch, that we too would be found obedient and ready and willing and seeking the, the moving of the Holy Spirit for whatever he has in mind for us as a church. Let's, let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we, uh, we thank you for your word. It's so encouraging, Lord, seeing that this story is, is your story and that you are in control of all things. Lord, let us be useful instruments in your hands, Father, as people and as churches as we gather together. Let us remind ourselves that you ask us to be faithful. The words you say are, well done, good and faithful students. And, the, uh, and those are the words that we want to hear, Lord. Um, help us to just uh, be obedient to your call, to rejoice in the circumstances you put us in, to be content, and to gr take great joy, Lord, that we sinners saved by grace out of nothing we've done ourselves get to play, uh, be a part of this wonderful story that we'll be among the crowds of the myriads and myriads in, in Revelation um, viewing your glory, Lord, and help us during our time on earth to not get carried away with our own ambitions um, or to be sidetracked by the devil or the sin hangover that we have within, but that we are simply, meekly follow you and, you and your will, whatever it may be, because your ways are not our ways, Lord. Pray for this uh, church that they, as they seek to emulate and follow the example that you've given and that they can rejoice in fellowship with each other and... Um, learn the word, teach the word, obey the word into this uh, city, Lord. And uh, we know that the plans, you've already ordained that whatever the plans may be, and we just want to walk in them. Please give us that strength, Lord, and uh, please be with us uh, uh, today. We thank you for everything you've done. Amen.